Well, good morning. If you are new with us, I am not the regular preacher, and, you're, and so the rest of you are wondering why I'm up here. Dan is okay. Um, he is alive and well. He's not sick. Um, he asked me last week if I would speak this week um, simply because he felt an urging from the Lord to go spend time with his daughter at one of her competitions. And um, uh, most of you um, probably don't realize um, when you speak every week, your weekends aren't your own. And it's really hard, as best as you try, to engage and be there mentally. Um, you're not. <laughs> um, anyway, so I told him absolutely I would do that for him, and he had a great time. They spent all weekend at competitions. He looked exhausted this morning, um, but he is doing well. And so I am the adult ministries pastor, and I'll get the privilege of speaking to you this morning. So um, welcome. Um, I am glad to be here. If you want, you can turn to Psalm 113. Um, this is going to be somewhat complementary to what Dan has been doing. And I'll make a couple preparatory comments, and then I would like to pray, and then we'll get started. But it is a psalm that reflects who God is in his greatness. And it is a psalm that calls us to praise because there's no one like him. And the psalm actually quotes Hannah and part of Hannah's song that she sang when um, she was given Samuel. So that's part of the connection and why it's complimentary. And I think you'll see at the end why it's such a benefit to our faith and what the psalmist has to say. One other thing about this psalm is this psalm was one of the, the praise psalms that they would sing um, before the great feasts. So before the Feast of Dedication or the New Year's Feast or the um, Feast of the, the Atonement when God's um, Spirit came over Egypt and, and um, the great Passover. This is a song that they would sing. It was a song probably that the disciples sang right before they went out to the Mount of Olives on the night Jesus was betrayed and um, taken. So the psalm has a lot of significance, and um, I think it's really going to be a benefit to all of us as we consider it. So would you bow your head with me, and let's beg God to meet with us. Father, I am just um, in awe of you. This psalm has slowed me down and has caused me to contemplate once again your greatness and how little I know of it, Father. And Father, I know that our faith is directly connected to who you are and how we see you. And our faith will wane when we don't look at you properly. And yet, Father, when our when we see you as you are, our trust inflates, our faith grows, and our praise increases to the glory of your name. And that's what I hope happens this morning, Father. As the psalmist has looked at your acts in creation and history and just barely touches on them, 
we find that you are incredible. So I pray, Father, use my lips, speak through me. Your people need to hear from you. They have not gathered to hear me, Father. They have gathered for one solitary purpose, and that is to meet with our God. So we pray that through your word and by your spirit, you would meet with us because we are desperate. We are needy, and we are hungry for your son. So feed us, Father, this morning we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Competitions, races, pageants, um, all have one main purpose, and that is to see who is the best, who is the greatest, who is the most beautiful, who is the fastest. Um, I love, I'm somewhat of a motorhead, not quite a motorhead as some are, but I love racing. I, I love to watch races. I like to see who has the, the best control, the fastest vehicle, um, the louder the better. Um, I've still got that kid in me. Um, and I think there's part of that in all of us that wants to know who is the best. Is that not what the Super Bowl is all about? Is that not what the World Series is all about? Is that not what the... Um, oh, just went from my brain. Where all the world contends. The Olympics, hello. Thank you. Yeah, I think you guys should come up. But that is, has one main purpose, and that is to declare who is the greatest, who is the fastest, who is the best looking, who is the strongest. All those things are found in the competition. And this morning, I think the psalmist wants to throw down the gauntlet. I think the psalmist wants to ask one question that begins the, the uh, I guess what you would say is to throw in the, his gauntlet. And that question is this, who is like the Lord, our God? I think is this is probably the most central question to our faith. Probably the most central question to who we are as a people of God. And that is to answer the question. The psalmist is not scared of the answer. He wants to know. He wants us to try. He wants us to compare. He wants us to throw the greatest contest there is because he knows that God will win. There is no one like our God. And that's what the psalmist wants us to get in our hearts and in our minds this morning, to be refreshed by, to be reminded of, to be convinced of, is that there is no one like our God. Who is like the Lord, our God? That is the central question of this psalm. It's right in the center of the psalm. And I want to look at the center and move our way out as the psalmist compares God. He says, the Lord is high above all nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks down on the heavens and the earth. He looks far down on the heavens and the earth. Notice the words high above, above, on high, looks far down. 
he starts off by saying, God is high above all nations. Remember, the question is, who is like the Lord, our God? Lord, all authority. That one word is con confirming all authority under heaven and on earth, everywhere. When the, the word Lord is used, it is talking about supreme authority. And, and the psalmist is asking, who is like the Lord? Who else has supreme authority? God is over the nations. He turns the king's heart anywhere he wishes. He raises up kings, he takes them down. And we see in Scripture that he points this out on numerous occasions. I'll just give you a couple. Pharaoh, the greatest king who thought he was a god. God took him down by many plagues, one after another, trying to give him time to repent, but he would not. And the, God, and the Lord showed that he is the redeemer of his people and no one, not the greatest king of the day, even the king who thought he was God himself, was going to stand in the way of our God. There is no one like our God who is Lord over all. Nebuchadnezzar sprawled out on the top of his palace and he asked the most stupid question or made the most arrogant, stupid statement. Look at all I have created. Look at my glory. And God said, really, your glory, you created. You've forgotten I gave that to you. Guess what I'm going to do for you now, Nebuchadnezzar? I'm going to make you like a beast in the field. And for seven years, you're going to graze with animals on grass until I give you your reason back. And that's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of that time, ate with the wild animals because he had the audacity to think that he was great. And when he came out of that time when God gave him back his reason, you know who, who he praised as king over all? The Lord our God. He realized he had no authority in comparison to God. Our Lord is the one who raises up nations and takes them down. He is the one who raises up kings and princes and presidents either to bless his people or discipline his people. He is in complete control at all times. Even in the bad times. He is in control. He is the Lord of all heaven and earth. Satan himself, we find in the book of Job, has to ask permission of God to touch Job. And even when he's given permission, God says you can touch him this far and no further. And guess how far Satan can go? This far and no further. There is no competition for our God when it comes to authority. He has supreme authority over all. He is lifted high above the heavens. 
I think it is an amazing statement that the psalmist wants us to understand that he looks far down. Where? On the heavens and the earth. Now, that's either going to cause one of two things, disbelief or unbelievable worship. Because when we look out at the stars, we look out at our own galaxy and only a part of our own galaxy. We are a galaxy within galaxies. And God has to stoop down to look at all of them. That is an amazing picture. He is over all. He is not constrained by our universe. He is not in need of our universe. And therefore is fully trustworthy. He is not contingent upon our universe. He is over all things, all the time. And nothing can stand in his way. He is God. He is the creator. He is our redeemer. He is our sustainer. He is our provider. And nothing can stop him ever. He is worthy of supreme trust because he is over all. And he has to stoop down to see our galaxies. And yet he maintains it all. He is beyond all things, above all things, majestic over all things, in power over all things. He has all knowledge. He has all strength. There is nothing lacking in his wisdom. When we look at the universe and we wonder what in the world is going on, it's because we don't have the data. He's got it covered. When our justice system fails, and it will, he won't. It's just a matter of time before all stand before the holy, righteous judge, and they will receive to the nth degree the judgment due them. That's a scary thought. There will be no lawyers to try and finagle an argument to confuse a jury. God was there. He has supreme authority. He is the creator of all. He is owed allegiance by every one of us because we are his creatures. You don't take a breath without his permission. Not a breath. He is deserving of our full allegiance just as creator. But he is also our Lord. He is our commander. He has all authority. And by that, he has all right to every bit of our obedience all the time. He is God over all things. And he is Lord over all things. He is beyond comprehension. And yet he has revealed himself to us graciously. It's interesting that when you Think of this question. 
it brings other questions to mind in the scriptures, like Job. Remember Job? In the story of Job, Job gets to the point where his friends drive him bananas. <laughs> Ever have friends do that to you? Drive him bananas, and he finally gets to the point where he's so frustrated, he says, I will contend with God. God's got this one wrong. He's messed up. He doesn't understand. I don't deserve this. And so, for 38 chapters, the big debate goes on. Probably for about 36 of those. And God shows up. This is the first question he asked Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That make you quiver a little bit? How'd you like God to show up in a whirlwind and ask you that question? Darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? God spends two chapters just asking Job's questions. And at the end, Job declares himself the fool. Your knowledge is beyond me. You are too wonderful for me. I can't comprehend you. Your judgments are perfect. Two chapters of questions. Questions that show that he is the creator of all things down to the point where he asks Job's questions like, Job, are you there when the goats give birth on the rocks? That's a strange question until you contemplate it for a little bit. Nothing happens without God's notice. Not even the giving of birth on the high Andes, on the rocks. God misses nothing. He's intimately acquainted with all of his creation all the time. That's one question. He asked Job, because Job thought he could ask God. Here's another good one. In Isaiah 40, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measurement and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding. No one. The answer to those questions is no one. He does all the, that for everybody else. Or Romans 11 declares this. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given the gift to him that he might be repaid? I love that question. It's kind of like your kids. Your birthday starts to roll around and your kids hit you up for money. And then all of a sudden you get a present on your birthday. 
and you greatly receive it. But it was your money. We have nothing that God has not given to us. Nothing. That he might repay. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God, our God, is above all things. His wisdom is matchless. His righteousness is pure. He is holy. He is just. He is all-powerful. Who is like our, the Lord our God? No one. But God is not just beyond. He's near. The psalmist wants us to know that we don't have a God who's just distant. No, we have a God. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. What I think is uh, interesting in this Have a glitch. No, it should be. Did that come up? Oh, there we go. There we go. Sorry. Maybe we don't have a glitch. I have a glitch. Um, what I wanted us to notice, that though God is beyond, notice his tender care. He raises the poor from the dust, needy from the ash heap, barren. God is for the broken and the humbled. Throughout the Bible, God has always been for the broken and the humble. He cares about the people we don't care about. He loves those who are broken and contrite. Remember the passage John read during worship I thought was so fitting? Jesus walking along. What did the people do? They tried to shut up the blind men. Don't bother him. Jesus, don't waste your time with these guys. These guys aren't real people. Spend your time with us. Our God has the biggest heart there is. He's not only beyond, he's so near to us. The people who would end up bathing themselves in dust, the homeless, the broken, the outcast, those who would be so needy that they're in an ash heap. And women in that day, if they were barren, they were considered not much of women at all. They were looked down upon like Hannah. Remember the story of Hannah? Constantly derailed by the second wife. Constantly made fun of. Constantly made to think she was nothing because she couldn't have children. God pays attention to people like that. Our God is the supreme ruler. But he's also a loving redeemer. He's also a compassionate God. He's also a God who wants to heal the broken, who wants to release the prisoner, who wants to lift up the downcast, who wants to care for those 
who need care. And you know what? If no one can stand in his way to rule the universe, can anyone stand in his way to care for you? Can anyone stop him from tending to your need? It's interesting in the Bible that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Any human being that humbles themselves before the Lord our God will find comfort, will find strength, will find rest, will find hope. Because that's the kind of God he is. He's defined as love. He is full of mercy. This is the kind of God you share with the world. One who has no rivals. Yet one who will clothe himself in human form. Make himself as nothing. Become the slave of all. Be crushed on a cross that he may save the humble and the broken and the needy. Who is like the Lord our God? Do you know any person? Think hard. Do you know any person, any being, any God out there, supposable God or other, that is like the Lord our God? You will find gods out there, at least supposable gods, gods that will be claimed to be supreme, but don't save. You'll find a myriad of gods in different religions that show up and are providential, but aren't supreme, and they cannot save. There's only one God who provides redemption for his people. Only one. There is no other. There is only one who has left heaven and the glory he deserved to come down and be spit upon. There is only one who loves his people so intensely, even when his people don't get it, that would leave his glory. And be beaten. There is only one that has ever died for the lowly, who's ever died for sinners, who has ever died to heal those who have been crushed by their sin. There's only one who is like the Lord our God. Can you tell me? I know of no other. I've studied many religions. I am no expert. But I have yet to hear of anybody who can throw down the gauntlet with our God, who can be compared at all to our God. There is only one who sits enthroned above the heavens, 
And there is only one who has ever come and entered our brokenness and loved us by dying to show us that in Christ he will give us all things, to bring us hope, to bring us redemption, to bring healing to the soul, and to give us a hope for the future. There is only one. So what should be the response of God's people? What should be the response of God's people to such a God? There's only one response. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Praise the Lord. There is only one thing that is to be done when you realize who you stand before. And that is praise. Five times in the first three verses, praise or the close sister, blessed, is mentioned. Five times in three verses. The chapter is only nine verses long. And it comes with the inclusio of praise the Lord. That is the response that the servants of the Lord are to give. When? At all times. From this time forth and forevermore, we are to praise the Lord unabashedly, like the psalmist, throw down the gauntlet. Who is like our God? Go ahead, tell me. I am not ashamed of our God. Tell me. Put your best contender up. Compare anyone. Who is like our God? Who is to be praised? God and God alone. The creator of the heavens and the earth. The one who has in Jesus Christ died for our sins. There is no other. At all times he is to be praised. And in all places, from the rising of the sun to its setting, at all times and in all places, the servants of the Lord should praise him. Doesn't this have a futuristic sound? There is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Forever. No one will ever question again who is like the Lord our God. No one will ever be deluded enough to think there is another. No one will be deluded enough to put their hopes in something less and find their hearts broken. You put your hope in God, you will never find your heart broken. Not by Him. Ever. You will never find your heart disappointed for all eternity. Because there is none like our God. He is to be praised in all places at all times. You know the wonderful thing about praise? 
it not only glorifies the God who deserves all glory and pays him the honor and respect and worship he is due, but it does something for the soul of the believer. It fortifies your faith. It strengthens your soul in Christ. Have you ever noticed when you find yourself just singing to God? And most of you know who have ever sat around me. I'm not a good singer. But I find myself worshiping. And I find my faith content. There is something in the act of praise that fortifies the soul. It honors God, but it builds you up. If you're not a person who sings, sing anyways. One of the sad testimonies of our time is people think they can, that they don't have to be a part of a body of Christ to know Jesus. And where in one sense that is true, you can know Jesus without necessarily being a part of a local body, that denies the whole New Testament. That denies the whole Old Testament. God is making a people for himself to worship together, collectively, to build one another up. And it is a foolish thing to think that you can go without your brothers and sisters, that you can go without collective worship. And think that your soul will be satisfied. That it will be filled. That it will be fortified. God has created us to worship together. And we will be doing it for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, there is only one question that you must answer. Who is like the Lord our God? Amen? There is none. There is only one who's worthy of your complete devotion. There is only one that will never let you down. There is only one that can never be rivaled and therefore is fully trustworthy. His promises will always come true to you. He's placed his name of security on it. He is worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your obedience. He's worthy of our adoration. And he loves us like no other. He is beyond, but he is near to his people. Amen? I want to give you a couple, just a few minutes. And I want you to take and grab someone right next to you. And I want you to pray over that person that God would fortify the answer to that question in their hearts deeply so that Satan can't take it away. There is no other. So would you pray for one another? Just spend a few minutes praying for one another that God would fortify the greatness of who he is in the heart of his children. And that we would believe that he loves us and is for us. Pray those things. Take a moment and do that right now.